Thank you for listening to Recyclables. I really appreciate it. If you want to support the program, the best way to do that is to like, subscribe, and share. Uh, the next best way is to make a donation either through the Acast app or at our Patreon, which is just patreon forward slash recyclables.com. Until next time, thank you. Take 97. Hello! Welcome. Thank you for listening to Recyclables. I am your host, PTP. It's going to be a solo episode today. We are going to be talking about magic, the gathering, the billion dollar industry, and some very light thoughts on it. I absolutely want to do a deep dive on magic, exploring the game, exploring the mechanics. That's not what we're going to do today. Instead, we're just going to talk about it as a sort of object in space, as a game, right? As a thing. I am going to try to be, uh, uh, as a thing. I am going to try to be objective about this and objective in the fact that, like, I'm, I'm going to try to talk about it without going into the nuances of gameplay. I will talk about the community. I will talk about kind of the general premise. Uh, and beyond that, it's mostly just going to be uh, a good old-fashioned PTP complains about the intricacies of capitalism episode. Introduction out of the way. Let me say right off the bat, happy Black History Month to you. Uh, I hope if you can afford to, you've sent a black friend reparations. Uh, I hope if you got a chance, you saw the Northwest Black Comedy Festival. I hope just a lot of things. I hope... Uh, Reparations becomes a thing in general. I hope the police state ends. You know, I got high hopes, boys and girls, uh, and thems and theys, and anyone else on the spectrum. Uh, before I get into the episode proper, I also want to do a couple of points of business. Uh, first point of business, I want to thank all the patrons who reached out to me. Uh, either in concern or with compliments about the most recent patron exclusive. Uh, it's an episode about self-harm. Uh, I kind of, I interviewed myself and I did a lot of work to record, re-record, edit, and uh, I was I was happy with the product, but I felt like it should be behind a paywall because of how personal it felt. So um, apologies to casual listeners, but you know, it's a dollar a month. That's You could literally spend $15 and cover your patronage for a year, and then you could listen to me interview myself, uh, my past self. Uh, it was a lot of fun to do, and the people who reached out to with concern that maybe I was uh, in a spiral that might lead to self-harm, I appreciate that. And the people who reached out to compliment me for what they enjoyed, uh, appreciation to you as well. Um, I think I owe all the listeners uh, an apology. I have had a lot going on in my personal life, uh, and I've sort of tried to step away from social media because it wasn't helping. I apologize I haven't been around. As you can kind of maybe hear in my voice, uh, I spent the last week getting over a cold. So this episode I was going to do last week, and then I was like, I'll just do it. I don't sound so bad. Uh, it wasn't COVID, thankfully. However... Uh, shout out to Rochelle. She is fighting COVID right now. So if you if you feel so inclined, send her some well wishes. She should be over it by the time this episode posts or or stronger into recovery. But get well, buddy. Um, 
I, I want to apologize because I know I, I know I'm always telling the listeners that, hey, the show is always going to come out, but it's going to come out at the ability I have to put it out. And honestly, I would like to do a week-to-week-to-week show. I would like to have a lot of things going on. But the realities of poverty and disability are that that's just not the way it works out. Um, I, I am sorry if I haven't been as communicative since I've taken a step back from social media. But part of the problem is I get this kind of anxiety and shame spiral because I, I have no money, you know, and I am disabled. And there's no, and, and even I, I appreciate when people just give me money, but I'm, I'm not here to beg. I am just here to explain that even with that, that's not a reliable way to pay bills or make sure things. And I have no model for success to follow. And kind of the, the really, there's this frustrating thing that happens every time I get like a cold or whatever, which is like, I have to stay in bed for a week. You know, like I can't, like if I, if I'm just sleeping for 12 hours a day, 16 hours a day while I fight a cold, uh, I'm less inclined to be up and less inclined to cause myself injury and then less inclined to uh, do other stuff. And I'll get to the end of a week and get stir crazy and realize like, oh, I am actually supposed to be bed resting that much all the time. And it's frustrating because there's no way to uh, pay bills <laughs> if, if I actually follow what doctors say. And there's no way to uh, survive. And then that builds up a lot of anxiety and a lot of shame because, like, I don't want to be a burden on people. And then that makes it hard to produce episodes because then, you know, I, I am aware of how it must look to produce episodes of a podcast uh, that is has all the steps done by one person when that's a thing that a lot of other people do. But, you know, a lot of people use AI algorithms to edit and a lot of people use maybe other people to fix the sound. Um, and that's, that's, that's not to knock them. That's just not the way I'm wired to do things. And that's also not the toolkit I have. I, I would really love to do a, uh, Dan Carlin show up in a studio with a, a bottle of fluids. Uh, in my case, it would be CBD soda. Uh, shout out to CBD soda. I don't actually think you do anything to me, but you taste like soda. CBD soda. Anyway. Um, but that, that spiral keeps me from functioning, keeps me from seeing things maybe for the way they are. Because I know a lot of people enjoy this show, and I think a lot of people would be happy if I just showed up and just babbled for an hour. Like, just so you were like, oh, okay, PTP's okay. You know? And I think, I honestly think one of the best solutions for depression is community. And I don't mean, like, volunteering specifically, and I don't mean, like, you know, going on marches or sign-waving things. I mean, specifically, like, community. Like, having people in your life who do things with you. And one of the really obnoxious and annoying things about living in a capitalist society is everything has to be about worth. Everything has to be about hustle. Everything has to have value. And I had been working on a few episodes about magic. I'd been, I'd been trying to figure out how, what if I try to combine my interests, try to monetize that. And I felt gross. I felt weird because to me, magic, as much as it is a game, is this thing 
that I do with my kid uh, that has been a bond between us. My kid learned to play at a very young age because I would be playing with friends and they would want to play. And I would be like, well, you can't because there's a lot of rules. You can play with me. You know, you can sit in my lap and you can put the card down and I'll tell you when to say counterspell and stuff like that. Uh, and then I started teaching my kids so that we could bond. Uh, and, and that's why, like, it's, it's, it's a thing my child and I share. It, it brings us closer. We, we spend at least two or three days a month playing magic. You know, sometimes we go meet up with friends. Sometimes we just hang out with each other. But there is a few hours dedicated every month to this game that is more than a game because it's been a way for my, my child and I to communicate. You know, we get excited when cards, when, when new sets come out. Um, and that's why I wanted to talk about uh, magic because magic is community. It's a solution to some of the things I, I suffer from personally as both a disabled person uh, physically, and a person who deals with uh, PTSD uh, and and depression and a lot of other things. I also think it, it helps a lot of people uh, who are disabled, who are maybe queer, who uh, are, are uh, part of a smaller group, a uh, minority group, and want to join in with other people who might not fit in. Uh, magic is really cool like that. Magic is also a billion-dollar card game. It is the main thing keeping the uh, business entity known as Hasbro afloat. Uh, maybe not the main thing, but it has surpassed sales uh, of all other products in their line. Uh, it's a flagship marquee product for the same business that makes G.I. Joes and Transformers. Right? It also owns D&D owns a few other things. And so what we're going to do is I, I first wanted to get kind of my personal history with the game out of the way, and then I was going to give you guys some history of the game, and then I wanted to talk about what's going on right now in the community, and then I thought I'd try to try to explain how this pattern has existed and operated elsewhere. Uh, my personal relationship with Magic the Gathering started, I think, like at the end of eighth grade, uh, my best friend Dan Bowles uh, was was trying to get me to play D and D, and the the problem was that Dan uh, struggles with reading, and D and D is just a bunch of books. You just read a bunch of books, and you come up with a story that you and your friends tell each other. Uh, magic is a little bit easier to read. You just have to read one card at a time, and twenty something years ago, cards were not particularly wordy. Uh, by the time I got to high school, my, my junior year, I had started an after-school club of it that I was funding with money from my own job. I would go and uh, buy like booster packs to give away as prizes and stuff. I'd run little mini tournaments in the back of the school, um, and, and I've always played it since then. I've had friends that, used to, that, that now uh, have businesses buying and selling cards. Uh, you can spend a lot of money on magic cards now and then. People can. Sp I've seen people drop hundreds of dollars on cards and uh one of my favorite things to do is to find out the most expensive deck and b defeat it with the cheapest one it's just one of my i'm a budget player uh part of that has been necessity part of that has also been the way i feel about class 
And if you can pay to solve your problems, uh, then maybe you're not good at solving your problems. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think, I think I already explained probably the, the thing about magic that makes it most sort of sacrosanct to me is, uh, the way it's formed my relationship with my kid. I made special little, like, beginner decks for them, and I would play against them with them. And, uh, if you want a bit of advice, let your kids win sometimes, you know? It's not gonna hurt them if you lose once in a while. Uh, and then once they know what they're doing, wipe the floor with them. Be merciless. Show them no pity. No, I'm kidding. Kidding. <laughs> it's like intense music playing. No. It, it, it's been a great way to explore what sportsmanship means, how to respect people, how to acknowledge privilege. It's It's been a super useful thing. Uh, the history of magic itself is, I think, pretty interesting. I'm going to include a few article links in the show notes. Uh, the way most players will tell it to you, this guy named Richard Garfield, who's a PhD in magic or er, in mathematics, uh, invented a card game. Went to a fledgling company in Seattle called Wizards of the Coast. Uh, figured out how to combine Dungeons and Dragons with collectible trading card games, and uh, made Buku money. Uh, but that's not the exact story. That's not the exact history. I, I found some interesting notes. Uh, I'm actually going to read some direct quotes in this episode. That's right, everybody. I actually took uh, some some notes and some quotes for this episode. That's right. The basics of what Magic the Gathering is. It is, I want you to picture Dungeons and Dragons, chess, uh, and poker. Dungeons and Dragons, and that it is a, a thing you build. You you build, there's character design. There you, There's magical elements. You are a planeswalker, a special kind of wizard who can travel between worlds and gather up spells of the five colors of mana. Green for forest, white for plains, blue for islands, black for swamp, and red for mountains. So so the there's that element. But it is it is a strategy game. You're trying to put pieces into play on a board and uh, get an opponent down to zero life, usually. There's other ways you can win, but that's the most prominent way. And then the um, reason it's like poker is you can sometimes bluff your way through a lot. And it is much like poker. Uh, high, uh, it used to be a high, highly competitive industry. Uh, if you ever look up uh, uh, magic controversies cheaters on YouTube, just just type those keywords in. You will have a rabbit hole you did not know was even possible. Uh, the the other reason I mentioned poker is that that is oftentimes where the more competitive players make their money. Uh, you play magic for prestige, and you play poker for money. I totally paused to go to the bathroom and hit my head on the door frame. I decided to take a one minute pause while recording because I had to pee. Oh my goodness. Okay. So, uh, if I start slurring, it's only because I have a concussion. Um, I explained my personal relationship with Magic the Gathering. Uh, let me try the history of Magic the Gathering. Um, Magic the Gathering is founded by Ph.D. holder in mathematics Richard Garfield. Uh, but his parents worked abroad a lot, and because of it, when Dungeons & Dragons came out, he wasn't able to get a hold of the game right away. So he just made up what he thought it was based on that. He made up a kind of uh, a room-by-room board game where you fought monsters, 
And uh, by the time he got to the United States, he was kind of surprised to find out what Dungeons & Dragons really was. Uh, but he spent the rest of his life making games. He, it's my understanding that to this day he still designs games. And uh, every once in a while, Magic uh, has him help them design uh, cards, like like put together new sets. Magic the Gathering itself is this game where you play a wizard called a planeswalker who travels the planes collecting a variety of spells uh, that you cast against your opponents. There are five colors. Uh, and you can actually make some match. So maybe uh, you get black mana and green mana and you complete a spell that touches on the circle of life and death. The game's earliest incarnation was a game called The Five Magics that Richard had been making, uh, that Garfield had been making since 1982. And and The Five Magics was unique in that it would, uh, Garfield was constantly innovating it. So sometimes it was a card game, sometimes it was a role-playing game, Sometimes it was a board game. Sometimes it was something else, you know. And Garfield is, is like I said, a very creative guy. He still makes games to these days. Uh, this episode actually is going to have a bunch of articles linked to the history of magic so you can get a little bit clearer on it. Basically what happens is he, he gets a degree in mathematics. He starts teaching at uh, on the East Coast. And then he's kind of visiting uh, friends in the West Coast. And one of his friends uh, runs a company that that is just a fledgling company called Wizards of the Coast. And Wizards of the Coast uh, says, hey, we'll actually publish your game. We'll, we'll make your game and we'll sell it for you if you want. And they do and they sell out. Uh, and it becomes, they, they print, do a new printing and that sells out. And that kind of becomes the, the pattern for a while. Like, like for several years, every set sells out. And then even the sets that don't sell out do exceptionally good in sales. Uh, kind of the interesting thing about magic is that it manages to be profitable without making big bucks. Garfield just wants to make games. I think he's a very interesting guy because of that. Maybe someday I'll do a deeper dive into him. Uh, but I want to quote from the 25 year journey of magic, uh, a August 28th article in 2018 from the New Yorker. People playing a game like magic, like five magics, could separately collect different cards, have different decks, and come up with different strategies from those decks. In doing so, they could transcend the game itself and express, in the midst of calculations concerning goblins and demons and angels, something that would be unique to them. An identity. Magic is closer to role-playing than any other card or board game I know of, Garfield later wrote. Each player's deck is like a character. That is one of the things I have always loved about Magic, uh, cutting the quote there for a second, um, is that, like I said, you, you can mix and match all the colors. Much like D&D, you are making a unique artistic expression. I have seen decks with themes such as, in the card's art, there's always a lady looking left. In the card's art, there's chairs. Uh, every card is done by the same visual artist, no matter how good the abilities are. Uh, I've also seen things that are all just uh, things that say fire in the name. I have a deck that's just dragons that I think are cool. <laughs> to get the game selling, though, is a different thing than to get the game designed. Richard designs the game Five Magics all his life. I, th I, think, I think the quote, I, I think he says he's been working on it 
since 1982, but even he admits it was based on things he'd been doing all his life, including his early version of D&D before he even knew what D&D was. So he has a friend uh, named, I think, David Atkinson. Uh, so he, so reading from a quote later down, he met Atkinson, uh, an executive of Wizards of the Coast, again near the wizard's office, and when Atkins heard the idea, he started yelling and hollering with excitement. He instantly grasped that the game that would become magic wasn't like Monopoly or Clues, which families purchased once and used for a lifetime. Players want to acquire more and more cards in order to remake the game and find their own unique expressions within. If executed properly, Atkinson wrote in a post on Usenet, the cards would make millions. Uh, you could tell the date that that quote comes from because he mentions Usenet, uh, which is a thing that happened in like the late 90s or the early 90s. Uh, and the idea of making millions is the standard of a business person. Uh, but I think that's interesting because we will come to this later. The reason places like Hasbro and so many board games aren't exactly a big business is because you really do effectively only need to buy it once, right? You don't really need more than one copy of Scrabble. Uh, that, that's kind of an issue. We're, we're going to talk in, in the later part of this about D&D and magic and where all this is going. But I think that's one of the interesting things about um, um, the way two different people can approach an idea. Because what Garfield sees is this unique way to kind of express your identity and show off who you are. And what this business person sees is, hey, here's a way to keep bringing them back. Here's a way to keep getting money off of them. I want to finish quoting from that New York Times article before I kind of move on a little bit. To give you, I, I, want, to, I want to read from a different article, sorry, uh, the Whitman Wire um, an article called Magic the Gathering, a Game's Origins and Influence at Whitman College. To give you an idea for the kind of guy Richard Garfield is, Garfield even proposed to his wife, Lily, in the midst of a game. He commissioned a special card entitled Proposal, which read, allows Richard to propose to Lily. The card, however, came at a high mana cost, so it took a long time to play it. So Richard had a great deal of difficulty playing the card. Any other man would have simply fudged the rules in order to get straight to the actual proposal. But Garfield spent four games trying to play the card legally. Eventually he did, and scored a wife in the process. Uh, and I think that kind of speaks to the sort of guy that you're talking about when it comes to Richard Garfield. He is the kind of guy who's like, I will do this really silly thing because I like solving the puzzle. I like making the game. That's what I love doing. Uh, like I said, I came along to Magic maybe in 98 or 99. So it's been around five or six years by the time I get to playing it. And the the interesting thing about that, they, they made a concerted effort to include like female characters that weren't damsels in distress. That was that was one of Garfield's like kind of, hey, I don't want that in the art. So there's like badass warrior angels, sweet archer chicks. Um, there have been mistakes, of course, like along the way at one point. Uh, they have this guy. I'm not going to bother looking him up. He's a huge racist. He he sneaks uh, KKK imagery into card art, uh, and he won't be the first like person with a bad take to make art. 
recently uh, when the Canadian trucker uh, thing was going on. Uh, this guy uh, totally was like, oh, I support these truckers without having really any political nuance. It was it was a whole thing. My point is the game has not necessarily been far from problematic. Uh, at the same time, uh, Magic has gone out of its way to be as inclusive as possible. Like one of the early sets is called Mirage. It takes place on a continent uh, called Zalfir, which is ostensibly uh, ha has inspiration from African locations, kind of a Wakanda vibe, but with magical powers. There have also been a number of non-binary, trans-inclusive heroes, uh, a number of LGBTQ heroes, they, them, a lot of inclusion, not because it's necessarily going to sell, but because, like I said, the same guy who's going to make a card that's about proposing to his wife and play four games so that he's not cheating... Uh, is probably going to go out of his way to make sure that other people feel secure in doing the same thing. There's a culture of that in the company. Uh, however, as tends to happen, people move on. I want to read further on down the line from that New Yorker article. Garfield was optimistic, but it wasn't everything he hoped it could be. When Magic first came out, I believed that by making something less objectifying to women, that women would flock to this new game experience. There was a lot of positive feedback from women, but it didn't magically change the distribution of players, he said. The cultural inertia was just too much to overcome. Just because we came out with one welcoming game, people weren't going to suddenly start playing as if they didn't feel welcomed for their entire life. Continuing that Quote, the company went through more philosophical growing after Sanders, uh, one of the early presidents, Akison and Garfield trickled out over the next decade. In 1998, Wizards marketing eschewed, air quote, broad appeal and narrowed its focus to, quote, established gamers, end quote. To a degree, the old ideal still held. An artist style guide posted in 2005 included a general plea for diversity and admitation that, though, quote, beautiful women, end quote, could of course be painted, they must be, quote, kicking ass, no damsels in distress, no ridiculously exaggerated breasts, end quote. Nevertheless, it was also made clear what was meant by established gamers. Right, quote, remember your audience's boys, 14 and up, boys capitalized there. In 2008, Wizards introduced an ad campaign called Here I Rule, May Lee, the longtime Magic player, recalls walking into a game store and seeing posters with a very angry-looking male figure surrounded by a bunch of demons. She remembered thinking to herself, this was not my personal experience. But, like the article explains, uh, no matter how good your intentions are, eventually people move on. And eventually the people that come in start being the people that are more motivated by the fact that, hey, the more of these cards we could sell, the more money we make, and less about, hey, what will it take to make this game be good? Uh, I want to quote from a different, a thegamer.com article about Magic's history. The early days of Magic's demand vastly exceeded supply. Wary of overprinting, Wizards of the Coast kept their print run small, and the case of the game turned out to be a passing fad. As a result, retailers would run out of stock in a matter of hours. This is part of the reason early Magic cards are so expensive for collectors. There just weren't that many made. Like I said, it wasn't until several years in that a set didn't sell out within hours. And even then, uh, it's just because they're finally kind of catching up in their own print. 
right? If a set goes bad, the, the kind of interesting thing about magic is much like how clue, how board games are a thing you can buy once and never need to buy again, you can buy one magic thing and sort of, you can always be tinkering with your deck. And one of the interesting things is that for the longest time, magic had no participation in single sale or the secondary market. Uh, and what that means is that magic wizards of the coast was only responsible, uh, and only, uh, allowed to sell their cards in, in the, in, in the, in the packs. So the only way to get a, a specific card was to hope a store bought a bunch of booster pack and sold it to you, or that somebody else was willing to sell it to you. Magic had agreed for a long time that that would be the only way they sold cards. So that's the model of the game for a long time. So the, the, another a little bit of follow-up kind of behind the scenes I didn't really get articles on, uh, because it informs the bigger thing, but I don't care about the exact details. Wizards of the Coast uh, few is the same company that owns D&D. Uh, and D&D functions very much on the same model as board games. Once you've bought the book, you've bought the game system. You've got the whole thing down. Uh, with Magic, once you've bought the thing, you can continue to modify it and improve it. Every time a new set comes out, I have favorite decks, and I keep an eye out for which cards are going to be good for it. I might not buy them anytime soon. I might only get them by trading with friends. I might never see them but I can be aware of them, right? And if I had money, it would be very possible to just continuously update my interaction with, with, with the game. And the real, the, the kind of philosophy that it had seemed like the game had for a long time is that they knew they weren't going to make a ton of money because that worry that they are just a passing fad is kind of always on their mind. So they never print more than they need. They, they only print what they think they can sell. A lot of words, I know. But the, the kind of relationship magic had with the player uh, was that if they printed too many cards too often, players weren't going to be interested in buying. Old players were going to lose interest, and new players would eventually run out. Essentially, magic wants to make you addicted, but it doesn't want to make you an addict. That had been their plan for a long time. For the most part, magic sets come out once every four months or so, uh, kind of seasonally. You get your winter, spring, summer, fall sets. Sometimes you might get a special release in the summer that was kind of a double product. And a lot of that was because they know their market is boys age 14 and up. And boys age 14 and up means boys who were 14 when this product started on up to boys who are 14 now. And yes, girls are much more included, as are more trans identities, as are a variety of people. But the my, my point is that knowing that that's your market, knowing that that's your target, knowing that you only have a limited demographic, their philosophy had always been, we don't need to make a ton of money because there's always going to be a new 14-year-old. And if we have you hooked, you're always going to spend money. That's just a, that's a smart way to do business. Uh, because you collect one of three kinds of people. You get people who uh, want to buy one of everything. You know, the, the kind of collector collectors. 
you get the people who are like me. I don't actually care about the cash value of my cards. I enjoy playing them. I, so, so you get the play collectors, the people who are like, oh, I want that. And then there's the novelty collectors, you know. Like I said, I have a deck that's all dragons. I have a deck that's all angels. Uh, I know people who collect specific printings or cards that they just like because they're novel. So you, you get these three kinds of buyers over and over again, and you get them hooked because there's a specific amount of availability. There's never too much product that the player loses interest, and never too little product uh, that they're not going to keep coming back. Which brings us to the 2008-ish period. Uh, that was mentioned in the early 2010s, mid 2010s. Uh, Magic begins focusing a little bit more on profit. It starts releasing uh, products in between the big product release. Uh, it starts doing two big summer products: one that's sort of a beginner level, one that's sort of an advanced level. Um, it starts ignoring uh, an online software that is a bit buggy, but very comprehensive, and more importantly, the the online used to have a secondary market component, much like the, uh, the card component does. And mainly what Magic was doing was kind of creating a server for you to store your collection that you bought and sold with other people. Uh, so the only time they really made money off of it was when new sets came out. But because they didn't spend money on it, they didn't update the software very much. So it's one of those things where they're like, well, we're not going to spend money on it because nobody spends money on it. And because nobody spends money on it, we're not going to spend money on it. Uh, it, was, it was a weird thing until they created a new uh, computerized version. However, this new computerized version has no secondary market. It is all internal and uh, exclusive to them. They they own all of the aspects of the cards. You just pay to to expand your collection through them. Uh, there's no trade component, so they've made a, a whole computer software and stuff so that they don't have to not make money off of any aspect of the game anymore. It's uh it's kind of interesting. My 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 point before I got myself all sidetracked a little bit. Uh, that, that was just a number of ways that they started realizing we have this community of players and we can just make money off of them. The push to be more inclusive happened at the same time for push to profit. So it, it feels like it's not a bad thing. And, and this is to say, inclusivity, not a bad thing. Let me just get that out there, like right off the bat, like right out of my mouth. However, inclusivity for the sake of profit, is a questionable thing. Because it's not about, hey, do we make players feel more welcome here? It's a more insidious thing. It's about, hey, how can we make more money off of more people? Which is how you get the experience that's described in the, the New Yorker article, where the lady's like, this wasn't my, my magic, right? Uh, because there is this idea that magic is a community. There's a perception that it's a community, uh, that I think is false, unfortunately. And it makes me sad every time I have to recognize it. Magic is a business. Communities form up around magic. Uh, and those are two separate, unique, distinct things. It's, it's like this. Um, my, my favorite local game store is called Red Castle. I go to Red Castle because they are very inclusive. And for as long as I've gone there, They've had a number of rules that say, hey, 
you need to practice good hygiene within your ability. Also, hey, it's rude to call players stinky. So we need to navigate. They don't say it exactly like that. They say it much more polite. But basically, their rules have always been you need to respect each other uh, and you need to respect yourself. And this needs to be a space that everybody can feel safe hanging out and playing games in. That was a big change for me uh, where I remember going to a card shop in high school and the local card shop was a dude who had Rush Limbaugh on and would yell about immigrants and ask me why I didn't want to get into something that was more profitable like baseball cards, right? Uh, so, like, part of the reason that changes is I guarantee you Red Castle was probably making more money than Hoopla was back in the day. Uh, but part of that is also that it's it's that's what community is. Community is the people that formed because those rules are in place. The old dude with the card shop across the street from the high school that I went to was never going to be in the mood to foster community. The uh, card shop up the street uh, that is owned by a guy who donates money to women's shelters <laughs> was going to be the kind of place to foster community. That had nothing to do with what they sold, right? That same guy could have a pizza parlor, he could have a, a tanning salon, he could have a coffee shop. Uh, the one person was already going to foster community, the other one wasn't. And that's kind of the unfortunate thing, I think, that happens with things like magic, with things like D&D, things like anime, is that these communities form up and exist because of these products, and we get we mistake the parasocial kind of maybe that's not the right word, but we mistake the nature of the relationship between the people and the product and the community. And that's what kind of upsets me is that part of the way magic used to make money was they knew that they were never gonna be the richest company. They knew that that any day they could be considered a fad and go the same way as pogs. At no point did Richard Garfield think. I'm going to influence Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! and countless other card games. I'm going to be the thing that all those games base themselves off of. No. He was thinking, hey, it would be fun is D&D takes a lot of hours to play. What if we had just a one-on-one D&D that took like 20 minutes? Right? That's, that's kind of more or less what magic is. And the way the company made money was recognizing, well... Let's acknowledge that we could be a fad, and this could end at any time now. So let's be responsible with how we do business. Let's be smart, and let's recognize that we could do things to jack up sales and make this a fad. But if we're invested in it, it won't be. It'll be a long-term community. Uh, and, and a lot of that goes away when Hasbro buys them. Uh, and a lot of that goes away specifically about four years ago. They had a shareholder meeting. Uh, of investors where they were like, look, we want to increase profits to a billion dollars a year uh, inside of four years. Uh, I don't I don't know if a billion dollars was the exact target, but they were like, hey, in four years, we want to make this amount. We want to escalate product. We want to do certain things. They make that amount in like a year of this concerted effort. And they're like, wow, uh, we could do this forever. And so they do. So for the last four or five years, there's been a very uh, aggressive uh, marketing product line campaign to essentially push it into the realm of a fad. 
at the same time, in an effort to be a billion-dollar company, they lose track of those initial three kinds of buyers. The people who are completionists, who want like one of everything. The, the person who plays maybe for prestige or whatever, like me. Uh, or the person who buys things who are nifty and neat. And they focus on two other groups of people. Whales and investors. Uh, an investor, and I might be using these terms a little bit wrong. These are how I'm using them. An investor is somebody who looks at the thing coming out and saying, I will buy this now because the price will go up and I can sell it for higher later. And the whale is a person who's like, hey, how much money can I spend on your thing to say that I spent all this money on your thing? If you think about it like cars, the three kinds of collectors that Magic had engaged with in the past were people who bought a specific kind of car over and over again. Like, like, you know, big fan of Mustang, big fan of Ford, always going to get that. Or they would deal with people uh, who were more uh, just bought what they needed to get what they needed done. You know, you, you work in an industry where you need a pickup truck, so you buy a pickup truck. Don't need a pickup truck, so you buy something fuel efficient. Or the third kind of car buyer that I always kind of liked was the person who was like, I just think weird cars are cool. You know, that Subaru that's also a, uh, a pickup truck, super cool. El Camino, I just want an El Camino. It's a car and a truck. Uh, but the other two kind of buyers that Magic started dealing with is the person who buys a car because it's a limited edition, and in 20 years, as long as it's sat in the garage, they can sell it for three times the cost, provided it's been properly maintained. Or the kind of person who's like, I will just spend $100,000 on a car to say I've spent $100,000 on a car. Uh, granted, uh, magic cards, unlike cars, haven't been used as a obscene and toxic gravitational force to warp the way we mold our society. Go check out Just Bikes on <laughs> YouTube someday to see how nations uh, that don't build everything around the, the, the car culture that we have do things. Uh, what I'm trying to say here. And I do understand that also, you know, magic cards, they're not a thing we need to live. They are not food. Uh, they are not shelter, uh, which is why I struggle with my relationship with them. Uh, because anytime new magic cards show up in my life right now, it's because of my kid. My kid has a uh, pretty good job, and they've decided that one of the things that they want to do is spend money uh, on me through magic cards. So they'll be like, hey, let's go to this event. Let's go to that event. Let's, let's take this thing that we've done all our lives and let me as your child be able to bring it to you in the way you brought it to me as my parent. And it's been a cool thing, but it's been a, a bit of an uncomfortable thing as I try to struggle with what does magic mean to me now that their focus is no longer creating something like a community but instead pushing something exclusively for profit. And like I said, I didn't think parasocial was the, the exact right word for what I, what I feel is part of the issue. Because I think part of the issue for Magic players is that for the longest time, we thought there was a community, when in fact there was a business that made its money off of a community and realized it could start uh, turning a profit instead. Magic was for many years a company that made no real profit, but paid its employees pretty well, uh, treated uh, players to some cool events, um, and was never focused on making money. They were focused on making cool cards, making things that weren't too powerful. Because 
Because one of the interesting things about Magic is you don't want cards that break the game. You don't really want a card that just says, I win the game, because then everybody tries to buy that card. And then that's the only card anyone wants, and then everything is warped around that, and then nobody's having fun. But if you have a card that says, I win the game, if you can't do a very simple thing, then there's a little bit more tension. Uh, I am greatly underselling what Magic rules texts say, uh, but my point is that it takes concerted effort to make magic good. And kind of the, the way players thought things were going was, we are paying you to make our product. And it has been kind of revealed over the last few years to a lot more players that really they're like, actually, you are getting in the way of our profits. We just want to make money. And players aren't a great way to make money. Players exist outside of profit margins. Uh, oh, this is why I like having someone else here, though, because when I get all rambly like this and when I lose track, it's a little bit easier to kind of bounce back. Let me let me backtrack for a second. I uh, it, I've seen that happen before. There are other patterns like this. Um, I I I remember as a kid the Death of Superman comic. And for those of you who don't remember, in the '90s, Superman died for the first time. Sure, superheroes die all the time, and sure, sometimes heroes die uh, and then come back next episode, but there was a big deal about Superman died, he's never going to come back, it's, it's a huge deal. And so people went out of their way to begin to buy that issue of the comic. They spent a lot of money, there ended up being like special edition, mint condition, special printing, deluxe imprints, uh, and then like a year later, Superman comes back to life, and the value of those plummets. Uh, but also, the investment of readers plummets because they've been oversold on this event that eventually gets undone. It's a lot more nuanced and complicated than that, but essentially, a bubble had burst. People had been interested in collecting comics for the same reasons. There were people who just wanted one of each comic. There were some people who were like, oh, I just like buying the comics that I like buying. There were some people who were like, I just buy the ones that have Doctor Doom. And then a new style of buyer comes into the arena. The person who buys a comic because in 20 years it might be worth more money, and the person who says, well, I, I spent $500 on this comic, look how cool I am because I spent $500 on this comic. And those two people uh, make it seem like there is more of an incentive for profit than there is. And when those two people go away because something new becomes the fad, or because something new seems like a better investment, the original people that were there, the, the original comic fans, are left with a bad taste in their mouth. Because, not only because, like, oh, we were left behind, the community is forgotten about, but because they were shown nakedly for what a business does. They don't care about the community, they care about the profits. You know, and I think that's difficult for players to see, and it's difficult for people to see an alternative to this. Because if it's happened in comic books, it's also happened in other things, right? I think to a certain degree, the bubble bursts every few decades on sports. Like, we, 
we get really invested in some sport and then we kind of lose a little bit of interest until some other sport comes along. And then it's like baseball, football, and basketball seem to just kind of keep each other alive. Or maybe the beer industry keeps them alive. Who knows? I'm not here to speculate about other businesses. I just want to talk about this weird thing in magic. And and the interesting thing about magic is there have been something like 10,000 unique cards. Uh, over a million cards have been printed. They're out there. So the business really could go away tomorrow, and magic will continue for a good long while. Uh, will it continue as long as chess? I hope so, because uh, I have a big stack of cards and I like playing. Uh, but will it continue past whether or not Wizards of the Coast makes a billion dollars a year? Yeah, and I think it's kind of unfortunate. Because there's a period in, like, let's say 1999, where Wizards of the Coast isn't making a ton of money. But they're not charging a ton of money for their product, and they are paying their employees pretty reasonably. So their employees are having their basic needs met to create a game for everybody to enjoy. And in return, other people were going to work at their jobs, doing their thing to provide uh, for their communities. And as a result, there's a sort of symbiotic relationship. Hey, uh, we the people who work at our stores will continue to work at our stores, provided you the people who make the cards will continue to make the cards, and we the people who play the cards will continue to get the cards because you like making the cards. And that's a full-time job, clearly. So let's, let's support that. Let's create that cycle. And then, you know, in whenever... Hasbro buys the company and says, yeah, that's a neat little cycle you've got going there, but we're not making money off of it as Hasbro, so let's do something to step that up. And it erodes all of these relationships. I think a lot of people think capitalism is the first relationship between the company and the customer, where it's like, oh, you'll make the product and we'll buy the product to pay you to make the product for us to buy the product. When in fact capitalism is, is when Hasbro comes in and says, Hey, it's really cool that you like buying the product, and it's really cool that you like making the product, but we're not making money off of both of you. Capitalism Hasbro coming in and saying, let me make money off of both of you. What we think of as communism or socialism, that's really what uh, that first relationship is more like. What if you keep doing a thing that we see as a valuable service? Well, then we'll find ways to do a thing that is a valuable service to make sure you keep doing that. And I mean, that's that's ultimately what I would love to see for magic is is a this is why I'm like wish we could just get rid of capitalism. Like this is why I sometimes I'm like we should just get rid of some people, some billionaires, some billion. Okay, I'm not going to advocate for billionaire genocide uh, in a recorded format that could be used against me in a court of law without saying satire. All right, this has been a weird rambly episode. I'm still not done. My 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 point is. This issue is going to happen again, just like it happened with comic books. It will happen. It's happening to video games. They've had a similar. If you look at the history of video games, right? Like the guys who who are putting together Mario and Zelda and Sonic love what they're doing. They're they're making a thing, and then as it goes along, video games become Halo fifteen because somebody's like, all right, Halo's a brand, a franchise. Marvel movies are doing kind of the same thing. They've stopped being about, hey, what can we do to interact with people? And more about, what can we do to top last year's sales? I don't know how to fight it. I don't know how to end it. Very sad to see it happening to Magic. I wish I wish more players thought like I do. Um, and m- maybe more do. I don't know. I, I really appreciate you guys listening to me ramble for like 
way too long about Magic the Gathering. We will have uh, a new episode up next week, too. If this was a bit rambly, do remember, I walked into my bathroom fucking door jam an hour and a half, or half an hour after I started making it. So if if it loses cohesion, uh, there is a reason. Uh, we will try to, I'm going to try to get back to making episodes bi-weekly. Uh, my life hasn't stabilized exactly. Uh, I should be able to record regularly without uh, a roommate who constantly yells at video games. Because that was an issue for a while, uh, not not to overshare. And like it was, it made it very stressful. It also made it hard to record because I would be like, "All right, so opinion about Magic the Gathering? Fuck shit, bitch! All right, cool. You gotta edit that out. It's not fun." Uh, but I want to get to a fun part of this episode. I want to get to the part where I thank our producers. That's right. How do you become a producer? Go become a Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash recyclables. You can do it for as little as a dollar a month. Basically, just look at it this way. Would you buy me a cup of coffee or a joint after hearing me talk? You can do that monthly just by going to the Patreon. And then at the end of it, I do a little shout out to your name for being an executive producer. Uh, until the date that there are too many people for me to do that. Uh, but I want to thank executive producer. We're going to do it upside down this time. We're going to do it top to bottom. Chella L, thank you for being an executive producer. I hope you are doing well. Ash Alexander, thank you for being an executive producer as well. I appreciate you. I love you as a human being. I love all of the producers. Let me get that out of the way. Let me not single out uh, Erica N either. She is my sister, and I love her that way. But I also love Carrie Davis, executive producer. Uh, she's a wonderful human being. Another person I love, Butterface Creations. I'm not going to say I love every person because it's going to get weird, but I do love executive producer Linda Grimes. Uh, thank you. Um, I am also deeply fond of Kristen Rowan. I would even say I have love in my heart for her as executive producer. Another person who I think highly gracious, wonderful thoughts of is Andrea Miller. Thank you for being an executive producer. Rob Campbell, oh, you know I am deeply uh, uh, caring and considerate towards your feelings, particularly as an executive producer. Okay, that was weird. Nova Starlust, you're also an amazing executive producer and a person for whom I have great admiration. Whitney Hampson, you are probably one of the people I respect the most in the world, not just as an executive producer, but as a human Stephanie Oxford, thank you for being an executive producer of Recyclables. I love all the work you do. We are going to get that episode done that you mentioned. Edwin Shives, thank you for being an executive producer. I'm pretty sure I love you too. I'm not going to front. But you know who I am most fond of as far as uh, listeners in the UK go? Sabrina Phillips, thank you for being an executive producer. And thank you for listening to this rather rambly episode of Recyclables. I hope you enjoyed it can't wait to catch you in the future i'm taught the music's going going away I'm fading i'm fading i'm fading
icon or uh, icon he he sneaks kkk imagery uh iconery icon he sneaks kkk thank you for picking up recyclables today donations to the acast streaming service are of course always welcomed but the best way to support the show is by going to patreon.com forward slash recyclables and becoming a patron today if you can't do that, another great way is by liking, subscribing, sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast on whatever podcast listening service you use. All right, thanks.